Okay, welcome to another episode of Don't Just Take My Word For It, where we hear from practitioners about the real world of legal research and writing. Today we have with us Bill Buck and Rob Johnson, two longtime in-house lawyers for ExxonMobil, who are going to share some of their wisdom with us today. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Great to be here. Bill, let's start with you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your professional life, where you went to law school, and how you ultimately ended up at ExxonMobil and what you did for the company? Um, I went to University of Colorado, and uh, I have both undergraduate degrees from there in business and geology, and then my law degree as well. So, you know, if, if anybody wonders whether or not I always planned to go to work for an oil company, the answer is yes. Uh, that, was, that was the plan. Um, I was hired as a result of a mistake uh, when I was, had finished my first year. And there's a story there that I won't bore you with. Uh, but I will tell you and tell you know everybody, don't discount the, uh, the impact of luck and serendipity on your career. Um, I walked in and found out that they thought I was a hydrologist and not a lawyer, and they hired me anyway um, between my first and second year, and I never stopped working for the company for the, for the next 37 years. So, you know, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. I spent most of my career, those, those 36 years, I guess, uh, in the upstream part of the business, which is the part of the business that's out looking for oil and gas. Um, but uh, I spent seven years where I left law and moved to the client side, where I was responsible for controllers and treasurers and the administration of uh, big affiliates, uh, both in the U.S. and, and overseas. Uh, I moved nine times during my career, each of them to a different job. Um, I was the general counsel of a foreign affiliate for three years in Norway. Um, each of those, you know, gave me this opportunity to see how lawyers can have real impacts on the operational side of the business. And each of them taught me that that's my job, is to have a positive impact on the operational side of the business. And I retired uh, in 2017 as the general counsel of our worldwide upstream operations. So I was responsible for managing um, lawyers in probably 15, 18 different countries around the world couple hundred uh, people in the United States as well. Um, it was a great job uh, all the way through. I could not have asked for a better career. And, you know, I think I got the opportunity to be um, uh, a lawyer exactly the way I wanted to be a lawyer, which was, I'm going to help these people figure out how to do the right thing at the right time. Outstanding. I can't wait to hear the rest of that uh, serendipity story offline because I couldn't agree more that luck plays a huge role in all your uh, lefts and rights and turns uh, in your career. Um, Rob, can you take us through the same sort of history for you before we start talking about writing? Sure, sure. So I, um, I went to law school, I graduated from Georgetown, and then I went into private practice with a fairly good sized firm in Washington, D.C. And I practiced primarily environmental law and litigation, representing corporate clients. 
And like many associates in big law firms, about four years in, I decided that I'd like to look at something else. And I joined the Law Department of Mobile Corporation, which at the time was headquartered across the river in Fairfax, Virginia, as an environmental lawyer. So I did that for a couple of years. And because I had litigation experience, I also did a lot of litigation. And in 96, I got a first management opportunity and got moved to Houston, Texas. And my wife cried and she went anyway um, and did litigation. I ran a litigation group in Houston. And then I had an opportunity to become the upstream general counsel for the U.S. upstream business for mobile. So I did that. And that's what I was doing at the time of the merger with Exxon. And I stayed in the upstream. Um, Exxon was organized differently, but we don't need to get too granular there. But that was the first opportunity I had to do any kind of international work. So I worked Af West Africa, South Asia, worked on a lot of Foreign Corrupt Practices Act issues. It was great. It's fascinating. I'd never done really any transactional work to speak of until then. And then in 2008, they asked me to lead our environmental group. And that was fascinating because that was when the Obama administration was coming in. And so a real focus on climate-related issues. There was the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill that you'll recall. Um, we had several Supreme Court cases that came out of that time in the portfolio, which was terrific to work with. Those are incredibly talented advocates at that level. And in 2012, I became, the same time Bill did, Assistant General Counsel. And whereas he had the upstream, I had what they called the shared services groups. So the groups that provided services to everybody, environmental, procurement, information technology, uh, real estate, et cetera. And um, did that until I retired in the fall of 2018. And, you know, I'm just a real quick story on serendipity. I think that job I had as a U.S. upstream general counsel really launched me. And I would never have had that job if the person who had it before me, person in Tony Henneke, who was getting an international assignment, hadn't called me up and said, you should apply for this. We had a process where you applied for jobs internally. I would never have done it. And in fact, when I did, my boss said, I would never have thought of you for that job, but this is interesting. And there I went. Um, so, yep, nothing's linear. Um, I could tell more stories about luck, but I won't. Um, but it's real. I couldn't agree with Bill Moore. Well, awesome. Uh, you both have a lot of great experience inside and outside of a corporation um, and all kinds of legal fields. Um, so let's talk about something that stretches between all those fields, both litigation and transactional, and that's legal writing. So I'll start with you, Bill. Are there some things about uh, legal writing that you have seen change over the course of your career? You know, I think it's, it's like most of the other things that have changed over the last almost 40 years is, you know, the introduction of electronics and, and direct communications has made a, a remarkable difference in how we approach legal writing. You know, recognizing that this just shows I'm old, I started at a time when you still got either a written request from your client or a written a letter that, that actually asked a question. And their response was expected to take some period of time before you, uh, uh, before they got it. And so, you know, that was the, the typical approach. The fax machine um, was a still a relatively infrequent um, part of day-to-day -day business. And as a result of that, your writing style and uh, the ability to kind of 
contemplate how you were going to structure your response to a particular question, you know, you had a little bit more time and a little bit more, um, you know, probably had more incentive to, to come up with that perfect, what you thought was a perfect memorandum. Um, today, and then I know, you know, my last uh, few years at the, the company, I was always proficient at typing. Uh, and that was probably one of my most significant skills as I retired was, you know, I could write a, I, I typed at 120 words a minute and I could, I could respond with a, a full-blown uh, memorandum from my laptop. Uh, and that became the expectation is that you were going to do that and you were going to do it very quickly. And so, you know, part of that change in technology and part of that change in, in kind of the physical way we, we express legal opinions had a, has had a real impact on our legal writing styles some of which I think is very positive. I think it has driven us to become more concise. I think it has pushed out a lot of the quote legalese that we felt like we needed to put in memoranda 30 years ago to, to make sure everybody knew we were lawyers. Um, I think those are the positive sides of, of what we've seen over the last 30 years. I think the other side is because that email comes in it hits your desk, whether you're uh, inside or outside a lawyer, they're asked a question. The inclination to answer that question instantly in the fewest possible words is one that is so difficult to resist, but there is so much value. And sit back, think about it. Think about, is this even the right question that you're being asked? What other questions should have been asked? And don't accept that it is that single email, which might be, it used to be, it might've been a letter. Now it's three lines at best. And uh, don't believe, don't, don't accept that, that you know the facts well enough to probably provide the legal answer. And I think that's a real challenge for, for younger lawyers. I think it's a challenge for older lawyers. We all wanna be responsive. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, we now have that ability to do it instantaneously, even if it's not the best product. And if you were going to respond, you know, quickly, what are the things you would hold on to to maintain that rigor of analysis or reasoning? Like, what are the things that at the end of the day in the three line email, you know, you just cannot skip over? You have to make sure that you give context to the answer that you're giving. So to the extent that you have some facts or don't know some facts, you have to identify what you're dealing with. Recognize the difference between, you know, importance and urgency. Uh, there are times you just have to push back and say, you know, this isn't that urgent. Let's, let's work through this problem uh, a little further before I give you a, a specific answer. I do think, you need to make sure that you touch bases with the appropriate um, people to give that answer. Sometimes that means going to your boss. Sometimes that means going to a colleague who knows more about this topic than you do. Don't, don't go on the assumption because the email was directed to you that you know the answer. Uh, you may in fact have to go ask somebody else. 
there's less legal research done today. I'm just convinced of it. People, I'm surprised how many lawyers I think use Google as their major legal research tool. Pretty good. It's pretty good. But recognize that it may not be enough. Recognize when you don't know the answer before you answer the question. If you have to go look, go talk to somebody and let your client know this is going to take me more than two minutes. This is going to take, you know, one of the things that I do want to stress is let your clients know you received it, that um, you're going to work on it. And if you have an idea of timing, let them know what your timing is going to be and ask them, is this going to work? If it's not, then you have to renegotiate what the time is. But don't just automatically assume that I got an email. I got to get an answer to that email to take care of the next email. Great advice. Rob, what can you um, add to that? Legal writing in, in your view over, over time and kind of the best practices to hang on to. Yeah, I, I, and I would tell your students, Bill has said a lot of great things there and I would urge them to listen to this over and over again, what he, what he said. I agree with almost all of it. Uh, Bill and I go way back, so I don't agree with everything, but um, that's why we're friends. But no, but <laughs> you can do, when you get that email, that three line email, Pick up the phone. Don't, you know, pick up the phone and call them. I know it's a phone. You don't want to pick up the phone. You want to send them a text or an email. It's safer. Pick up the phone and say, hey, I got it. Got a couple of questions for you. Maybe we could talk. You will, you will get more context. Yeah. A couple of other things. Um, I think good legal writing will set you apart. My view is overall the quality of legal writing more re has diminished recently, more recently. There's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I think if you are concise, persuasive, yes, good, good grammar matters. Oh my goodness. Typos, 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 terrible. Um, you will set yourself apart. I, I frankly think a great way to see examples of persuasive legal writing, because your, your students are going to be reading a lot of cases. They ought to take a little time and read a couple of cert petitions, petitions for certiorari, because the writers of cert petitions have to persuade at least four Supreme Court justices to hear the case, so they've got to get to the point and they've got to frame the question in a way that is persuasive. It's a fabulous way to, to read some really strong legal writing. Um, but, you know, I think I, I'm not going to replow the ground that Bill has so, you know, you know, laid it out there so well because I think he's spot on. Um, never give legal advice in a text. Never, ever, ever. That'd, that'd be the one thing I'd say. Yeah, that's a pretty advice. good one. <laughs> what What are your big holdups to that, Rob? I mean, text is the way to go. Are you worried about privilege, confidentiality, or just sloppiness, or what are we talking about? Um, I'm not really worried about privilege per se, because it's if you're giving legal advice, however you're giving it, it's privileged. Um, I am primarily worried about sloppiness and um, lack of rigor. We treat texts like conversation. Um, we used to do the same with you. Um, and I just think it doesn't give you the opportunity to get into as much detail as you will need to do. Because if you're, I've yet to see a legal issue where what the facts were didn't matter, and how you interpret the facts didn't matter. Um, and how the law applied to the facts as you interpret them didn't matter. And you cannot just do, you just can't do that in a text. I, I, so that, that brings me to a similar question. Is email the primary way that you communicate 
um, in your legal work? Yes. I, yeah. I, I can tell you in the last five years, even as general counsel, the number of times anything was raised to me other than by email, maybe three or four, but I, I would be hard pressed to even say that everything, whether it was a, a question from the chairman of the board that was forwarded to me or a question from a lawyer in, in Nigeria or a client in Nigeria, it, it came in through email, not, not in any other form. Either email or telephone. If it was something somebody felt particularly sensitive about, they might call you and say, could you come over and talk to me about something? But other, otherwise, I, you know, you, we used to have, when I was at private practice, you would keep a copy of all your correspondence that you received and sent out. And I have these huge, what we call cron files, huge. I bet in the last five years of my legal career, I didn't fill one, uh, just in terms of letters and you know, written. Yeah. So that was my experience too. And, and um, the, with email being the primary form of communication, does that change any of your advice? Or um, do you, if you're the sender of the email, do you expect uh, newer lawyers to be pretty responsive? Like what, what are you looking for when email is the mode and it's no longer a memo, but it's not as quick as a text? Again, I, I think that's the challenge for new and for old lawyers is just because it's an email, which makes it seem urgent, doesn't make it important. And that whole concept that just because they emailed you something, yes, you got it instantaneously, does not dictate that you have to respond instantaneously. You need to look at the facts and figure out, you know, how quickly do I need to respond to this? And again, that's where Rob's advice is, is absolutely the, the spot on on this. Talk to them. Um, you know, it's one thing if there's a, uh, a ship out on the, the, the water and you're trying to figure out what to do because there are, you know, uh, foreign vessels surrounding it. Yeah, you want to be pretty, uh, pretty responsive right then. It's another thing just somebody's cleaning up their desk and they have legal questions and they've sent it to you and they've got time for a response. Make sure that you don't treat those equally. Yep. I think that's right. And I think. Rob, you're muted. Hold on. There we go. Sorry. There we go. I, um, I think another thing that your students will come to appreciate over time is you may be dealing with a sophisticated client um, or you may not be. The client doesn't appreciate in many cases what all is required for you to answer that email. And again, this goes to communication. And I will say, I think both Bill and I would say of, of all of the problems we've seen arise between clients, whether they're individuals or corporations or institutions and they're outside lawyers, it comes down in almost every case to poor communication. Somebody didn't understand, somebody didn't, they had unreasonable expectations and nobody explained why that was unreasonable. Um, I know we'll talk about deadlines down the road. That's a classic case where that arises. Well, let's uh, talk about it now, Rob. Tell me about deadlines and how that, how that plays into what you were just talking about. Well, obviously you have to meet deadlines. I mean, that's, that's obvious. You know, as an ethical obligation, you can get disbarred if you fail to meet deadlines. But to me, the important thing is, and your students should start this now, what you need is a plan 
for meeting the deadline. If you say, well, this is due November 1st, so I've got all the way till November, but you've got other stuff. And in private practice, you're going to have a lot of other stuff. So how do you fit this in? In, in dealing with clients, let's just say you've got a brief that's got to be filed with the court by September 1st. Well, you really need to pick up the phone and say to your client, how much time will you need to review this draft brief? And what other internal traps, particularly if it's a corporation, there will be. Um, you need, because Bill and I can tell you, if you have a September 1st filing deadline, I'm probably going to need to see that brief, the first draft that you're comfortable with, before early August. I mean, that's a long time. So September 1st isn't your deadline anymore. Now it's August 7th. And so you need to have that kind of a plan. And particularly now as you're embarking on your legal studies, you're going to have other classes and other demands. Um, you're not going to put a quality product together in three days. Not going to happen. Trust me. Tried it. Failed. Um, so those, those are some thoughts. No, I'm right there with you. I, and, you know, I, I did not ever have um, any private practice experience. So I didn't have, uh, you know, the, the opportunity that, that Rob did of learning about, you know, what court filings need to be made when I was the one responsible for making the court filing. I, on the other hand, was the guy on the other end to where I was very unhappy when an outside lawyer would send me something and say, I need you to approve this because we need to file it tomorrow. And I have to say, look, I need to go to my clients and they need to understand what we're doing. And you can't give me 24 hours to turn this around. Um, and so, you know, those deadlines, whether you're inside or outside, uh, are, are ones that, you know, have real world impacts and you need to be planning, just as Rob says, to, uh, to meet them. Yeah, Bill touched on something that'll be important, particularly as your students after they graduate and go into the practice of law. We tend to lose confidence in a lawyer who is always scrambling to meet deadlines, no matter how good his or her legal work may in fact be. There's a lot of really good lawyers out there. I don't have time for drama. I don't have time to deal with this stuff. This is not the only matter your in-house clients will have on their plate. And um, you got to help them. And it's as simple as saying, how can I help you be the most effective in your role, in-house person? Or, you know, people appreciate that. And you got to deliver, of course. So I think uh, one of the things that first-year law students don't always appreciate right off the bat is that when you are an outside lawyer dealing with a lawyer inside a company, that that lawyer does in fact have their own clients inside the company like you were talking about. And to an outside lawyer, you guys are the client, but you then have another layer. And so just in general, interacting with clients, whether you were the recipient or you were kind of the lawyer in that situation, um, what are your top three things you think are the most important for um, good client interaction, effective client interaction? And I think you've touched on it some already, right? Good communication and things like that. But um, if anything else comes to mind. Well, one I'd start with, just recognize that circumstance. If you recognize that circumstance, it will make a big difference uh, on for everybody. Because then nobody's surprised of, I can't do that, or I've got to go talk to them or, or something else. Um, 
but for an outside lawyer, you know, one of the things that uh, I think Exxon could pride itself on was Exxon was not a big believer in having outside lawyers advise their clients in-house um, because we really thought that was ultimately the responsibility of in-house lawyers was to make the final legal recommendations to the, to the businessmen. And so there is, there, there can be tension in that circumstance where outside lawyers say, I don't want to talk to the in-house lawyer anymore. I want to talk directly to the client. I don't need you to be part of this process. And the reality is the inside lawyer often brings a perspective and a, uh, you know, context that the outside lawyer does not truly understand. And so, you know, whether you're the outside lawyer or the in-house lawyer, you got to find a way to to balance those interests and to work together because, you know, you're both working for the same ultimate client um, and both of you have the opportunity to piss that client off. Um, uh, but it's the in-house lawyer that is going to take the brunt of that. And he's the one that is going to have to manage that relationship at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I can recall maybe one or two occasions where I had an in-house, an outside lawyer come in and talk to a client, and that was where the client refused to believe the advice that they were being given. Um, and that so in a couple of other points, and some of this may sound obvious, but remember, this relationship is a professional one. You may become friends with your client. That's nice, but this is a professional relationship. You may have a client who comes across as very easygoing, very informal. I'm not suggesting be stiff or off off-putting, but remember, this is business. Um, and they will remember that, particularly if things start to go a little south. Another thing that's important, particularly if you're on the phone or in a meeting with a client with another colleague, say from your firm, never disagree with yours, you know, have a disagreement in front of a client. There may be legitimately two or three different approaches to a situation. All right, lay that out. But if you think the answer is A and your colleague thinks the answer is B, you need to figure that out before you go see the client. Clients do not want to see the sausage get made um, in front of them because all they're thinking about is, I'm paying for these people to not give me an answer. Um, they don't like it. Another thing with client error, you, you, someday again, I hope there will be social settings. Um, you will have opportunities to socialize with clients and remember that's business too. Don't have too much to drink. Don't be too funny. Don't be too loud. And you know, because people do all of those things. And that's a business meeting. You're playing golf with a client, that's a business meeting. So I'd say th those are some things that I would suggest you always want to keep in mind. Yeah, I agree. All right, last question for both of you. Well, before I give you an opportunity to just end with any parting advice you want to give uh, these budding law students, but what are your pet peeves when it comes to legal writing, whether it's contract drafting or, or some other kind of communication? Or punctuation <laughs> and grammar. I mean, it still makes a big difference. Um, the first time I, I did a significant draft of, of a memorandum uh, in New York, and I submitted it to uh, a guy that, that Rob knew, Will Bogarty. Um, uh, brilliant guy, 
Um, and it came back, uh, you know, bloody red uh, because he had done so much editing. But it, it was not my legal analysis. It was the way I had written the memorandum. And again, it was, he emphasized how concise can you be? How uh, precise can you be? Um, and, and he emphasized again, this makes a difference. Use proper English. I think we're getting away from that in so much of our lives um, where, you know, we either tweet or we text. Um, and that seems to be an adequate answer for a lot of things. It's not an adequate answer for a lawyer. Figure out how to write a proper sentence. Read it out loud to yourself. If, if you're writing the chairman of the board and you've skipped a word in the middle of the sentence, you should be very embarrassed. Um, there's no reason why your work isn't as good as it can be. There are, if you're out in the middle of the forest and you're having to write something, it's one thing. If you're at your desk, write a decent uh, 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 paragraph and, and people will remember that. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, grammar is important, you know, and it's more than just spell check. Read it, read it again, and get somebody else to read it. I remember a, a brief in the first sentence of the, of the final draft, it said, you know, intended to say this brief is hereby submitted as a friend of the court. Instead, it said this brief is hereby submitted as a fiend of the court. Because they <laughs> and fiend is actually a word first sentence. So, you know, and and again, you know, you're you're starting law school, you want to do well, you think you're competing with everybody else. You're really not. Don't do that. Do your best and help your classmates and then your work colleagues do their best. Life is a team game. Have somebody read your draft. Read their draft. I am friends today with my law school study group, every one of them, except one who's unfortunately passed away. We get together every year. I succeeded in law school because of those six people. You know, this is not something you should be doing on your own. You won't do your best if you don't get help. And that's true both in school and in the practice of law. You'll be better in every aspect of your game. That is some great Absolutely. advice. Yeah, I, I would agree. And part of the great thing of practicing law is that you're part of a team. Um, and it's fun because you bounce ideas off each other and you catch each other's, you know, foibles and you uh, figure out who's got strengths and who's got weaknesses and you try to get the best out of everybody. Bill, Bill and I spent a lot of time in one another's offices during the year saying, what do you think about this? You know, here's how I see it. Am I looking at this the right way? And we not, not just the two of us, but with a lot of people. You park your yeah. ego at the door, you'll get a better answer. Yeah. Never believe you can do this on your own. Uh, the reality is, is life is too complex. The law is too complex. Um, and it's no fun. Yeah, I know we all three know solo practitioners who office with other solo practitioners just so they can do that. 
exactly. right? Because it's just really almost impossible all by yourself. And, and it's a good, it's a good reminder not to start law school like that, even though sometimes we make them do it on their own for grades, but it's not always reflective of the practice. And it's good to yeah. remember that. I mean, you, you can't lean over to your neighbor and say, I'm struggling with this test question. What do you think? I mean, I'm not suggesting that. <laughs> right. But there's no excuse for you to submit a moot court brief without a couple of other people's eyes having been on it. I mean, yeah. Good example. Well, any other thoughts you want to impart on our law students? I'm so appreciative of your time. I loved legal writing. I taught legal writing when I was a third year. I taught first years. And, um, you know, the, the days have certainly changed from people typing them out. And, um, uh, but, but the overall uh, point here is to provide as good a legal answer as you can uh, in a manner that your client can effectively implement your advice. And that hasn't changed. And so, you know, make that your goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Just remember whether it's whether you're writing in a litigation context or a transactional context or just general advice, there is a goal you are trying to achieve. There's a problem you're trying to solve and keep focused on that. Um, and, and that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Hey, great. Thank so you. Thanks for listening to Don't Just Take My Word For It, where we hear from practitioners about the real world of legal research and writing. Until next time.